The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. I'm Simon Reynolds and I'm in an imaginary airport business lounge with the world's most successful people waiting for their flight. Business people have to travel and sometimes delays happen and we can take advantage of that. You get to hear 45 minutes of one guest in conversation before their flight boards. You'll hear their stories, the triumphs, the challenges and the lessons they've learned along the way. Welcome to the Business Lounge. The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. Hey there, it's Simon Reynolds here and you have entered the Business Lounge. Today's guest is not your average entrepreneur. He looks different, he thinks different, and he has a way more different bank balance than almost every entrepreneur in the country. I'm talking about Fred Shabestra, worth hundreds of millions, founder of Finder.com, the finance, insurance, and utilities comparison site, and several other fascinating crypto ventures. Fred, welcome to the Business Lounge. Thanks so much, Simon. Now, I didn't go to uni. You kind of went to uni and then did go to uni. You tried a few different degrees. What happened there? Yeah, I think I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I came out of a similar school to yourself and you're all juiced up that that's where you're supposed to go. You know, I was quite good at mathematics. Um, What I found out was only a very specific type of mathematics, which was more spatial mathematics, Um, whereas I went and did actuarial studies, which is probability, and I... Actually, didn't understand the topics, and I did computer science because I like computers, mm. and I like to play computer games. And so I just sort of started going to the courses I like to go to, and didn't really do the ones I didn't want to do. And eventually, after four years, I said, "Look, I think I've had enough." And I started a business at in my college room, which was building websites. Mm. And I thought, okay, maybe it's time to go and leave. And so I went and spoke to the to the enrollment lady who gave out the degrees, and I said, "What, what can you give me?" She said, "I can probably." give you a finance degree. And I said that I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> Fantastic. That's the way to do uni. So in addition to uni, you were part-time or full-time at Pizza Hut? Oh yeah. So I, <laughs> I was in the, I, I needed some cash because, you know, at university you need to make some money to, to, sure. to, to, to pay for, you know, drinks and food and chicken burgers and whatever else. And obviously I was starting a company, so I didn't have very much money at all. And I just signed up with the call center and I just went, look, it was down the road from Macquarie University and I just sort of said, I'll go in. And what I would do at night, what I would do is just sit there and I'd just take people's orders. So I'd yeah. deliver pizzas literally everywhere. Yeah. Truck drivers. It was the best. And I, I I only worked there for a short period of time, but I but I I there was the thing, there was an upsell board. Yeah. And my whole goal was to get to the top of the upsell board. Yeah. So I would always try and pitch people the, you know, the package deal, the family, hey, let's get you an extra Pepsi. And, you know, I, I don't know, naturally I just loved it because it was one call after the other. I was like, welcome to Pizza Hut. My name's Fred. Can yeah, I start with yeah. your phone number, please? I was like, next, next, Fantastic. next. Fantastic. Do you ever pick up the phone now and say that? Just to add just a to, <laughs> I think it taught me like to not be afraid of selling over the phone. Yeah. In a way. What a great skill. It was inbound sales. Mm. So I was really nurturing sales, not developing business, but still handling that customer. And people would call up, complain and stuff. And I would, you know, work through that. Yeah. I think it was just a great raw skill to learn. A hundred percent. You were doing inbound, but I've definitely heard other entrepreneurs say that when when their kids are older, they're going to make sure they do some kind of selling 
as a job, even part-time, just to learn that skill of persuading. Yeah, I, I delivered food for a little bit as well. That was pretty intense. It's an intense thing to go from one location to the other. Yeah. This is before Uber yeah. as well and all that stuff. This is like back in the day. It was very intense Stressful. work. Stressful, yeah, because yeah. you really got to get there and you're going to new locations continuously. Yeah. So you're navigating yeah. nonstop. I think, I think I, I don't know, I always enjoyed selling to some extent. Mm. I, I remember doing this young entrepreneurs um, thing you do at school mm. and there was this one, like, and I was part of the, I think the finance area again i don't know why i was part of the finance area but and we went to the to the event the showreel and and what someone had done is they a team had sold out their stuff i was like how did they sell out their stuff what mm. happened here mm. you know i went over and looked and what they'd done is just made wrapping paper that just said crazy lines like it had like just zany things yeah like you know free sex or you know free beer and it was just written really high and everyone's like, oh, it's crazy. And they just bought their stuff. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, oh, like the wrapping paper sold. Yeah. And it just frustrated me. And I realized yeah. in that moment, the marketing makes the selling a lot easier. Mm. Mm. And I and, and it's the wrapping and and that that sort of steered me to that mark. I never never studied marketing at university. Yeah. Probably should have done. Does that mean that you never actually properly full-time worked for somebody else you just opened your own business or or you did work somewhere i guess i guess i worked for the for the pizza hut and that's about it you know um i also worked oh sorry i did work for the black stump that's an obviously now that was a great restaurant that was a great restaurant not enough talk about black stump i don't know best steaks in town yeah and it was so strange i remember there's a couple of anecdotes i was i was there and i'd watched the patrons come in and i was so fascinated by them Mm. and i said to the manager i said why do we always discount all the time. Why don't we just offer some better service or what? Like, can't mm. we do something else other than well, always a voucher? Yeah. I remember the, 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 great, as the business was point. going out, I was like, why are we always just dropping our prices? And yeah. I think it was because they wanted to sell the meat because it was owned by a butcher. And I was like, I was like, that's weird. And the other thing I said to the, to the, the manager, I said, why don't we salt the chips? And the guy said, man, I think you should get back to cleaning the dishes. Like, I'm like, I'm like no, but then we're going to sell more drinks. Like we need to get some money in yes. this place. It's empty, you know. Like, yeah. like oh, there were big times we did big service, but I was like always. I realized I was concerned about the operation of the company, yeah, as opposed to doing the job. And I so I, I left. Yeah, fascinating. And and that kind of inquisitive nature, the thinking of thinking of questions that other people don't ask. Are you finding that you're doing that a lot even now? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm that guy who asks, "Why can't it be like this?" Yeah. And I think that that probably comes from going to a very traditional school, very, you know, this is what you learn, this is how you should learn it. You know, my parents are doctors, so again, they follow the rules and then they get rewarded. And if you follow the rules, you get rewarded. And I was always like, why do I have to follow the rules? Mm. Mm. What about everyone else who's winning? I could see all these exceptions. I'm like, they didn't do that. Mm. None of these people did any of these Mm. things and yet it still works. So if I was arguing with my parents or arguing at school, unless you had an outside answer or something to win, you're going to lose because yeah. they know the path. Mm. So you've got to move the, you know, like Sun Tzu, you've got to move the playing field outside of their territory. Mm. And and so I, I've always been inquisitive about what is everyone else not doing that is actually the better opportunity? How are you going to create some alpha? If, if you've read a, you know, a, a market industry report, that's probably the information that you need to avoid. That is all the stuff that everyone else knows because yeah. what is an industry? It's basically a whole bunch of companies copying each other and trying to benchmark against each other to get exactly the same return. Yeah, so true. And so price is basically going to go down and margin is going to be eroded. Yeah. You need to go and take that and go, okay, these are all the things that we're going to lose at or eventually. What are we going to do outside that? And that that's the way my mind, Yeah, I don't know why, or it just, I, I think it's just programmed into me. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's the battle between optimization, which is the game they're playing, and innovation, which very few people are doing. I suspect, though, because you've had so you've got so many people underneath you as well, you're pretty good at optimizing uh, as well as innovating. Yeah, that's I, I like. I appreciate that um, suggestion. Summon. I think in the beginning, when it's small, yes, to, right. to get product market fit. But I think over, over, uh, like after a while, I get a bit bored, unfortunately. Or, right. and I'm, I'm aware yeah. of that, and that's why I sort of remove myself and ask someone else who's much more capable to, you know, drive that. Because there's, there's an efficiency to that. There's a, a real art to balancing the motivation of, you know, your team to optimizing rather than. My art is more, okay, we've got a blank piece of paper. We need to go and create $10 million of revenue. What are we going to do? Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. You know, let's start. And I think I'm more lent to the to the innovate side. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So for for the listeners who aren't aware of it or only semi-aware of it, tell us about finder.com. It's, it's a comparison site for a variety of things. How'd you start it and how's it been going? We registered credit card finder back then in 2006. And, I, and I, we were looking at it and we are going, okay, we know all these skills. We know how to build websites. We know how to, you know, market them, get traffic. And everyone's making all this money from the services we're providing. And we're only getting this small part of that, mm. which seemed a bit unusual. And I thought, well, why don't we just take the risk? And, you know, it wasn't that much dif- more difficult to build stuff and market it ourselves. And we put A4 pages of our best ideas. It was 15 of them. Yeah. And basically from all the things we saw on the internet, we thought, okay, what could we do something like? And we wrote a bunch of ideas and just, you know, there was a Sudoku one and a sports betting one and a, you know, Mother's Day presents and a bunch of different things. And one was credit card finder because I thought credit cards make money. I saw a guy making a lot of money out of credit cards and I thought, well, why don't we just try and get to the top of Google for credit card? That'll make some money. And and I thought of that, I saw that, but as a challenge that was almost like that's probably going to take 10 years or some some yeah. insurmountable idea that to, to rank for the, this huge keyword in you know competitive market it just seemed bizarre, but hey, we'll, we'll give it a try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd say like um, we tried a whole series of other ones. I, most of them, they got a little bit of traction, but I think the credit card one, for whatever reason, it just meshed well with what we like to do, the experiments we took and that, I, that at the time it just led... Every single thing I did led to more traffic and more revenue. Yeah. It was a direct correlation. So we actually went and sold the agency and kept that little business. Yeah, right. Put it on ice for about two and a half years and then came back to it. Um, And I think we just rolled out the playbook really that we learned from grinding seven years of helping people market their business and just we're still executing the same thing. What other ways can you get people to come in and raise attention and bring people in? Because you've got a variety of businesses, you're spending what percentage of your time on on Finder versus the others? You pulled back, haven't you, on Finder? Yeah, I think I am. I'm not an operational yeah. in the organisation. I really work with Frank, who's, who's the other um, founder, and he, he and I um, have been working together for in 2003. We started working together. So that's 20 years. He runs the organisation, and he's he's the, he's the global CEO, and he he really um, brings that together. And then I work with him a lot. I work with some of the executives uh, and then I have a little venture experimental experimental business that sort of invents things. Fantastic. Um, and it's really the replication of what we did before, right? So we, yep. you've got an existing business and you're doing it again. And, and that, that, that fractal, I almost see it as a fractal. It's yep. just constantly, that's where I naturally sit uh, really well. Some of the projects that I think I get quite specific and operational on, 
But for the majority, it's it's better that I'm not. Okay. And in addition to that, in your spare time, which I don't know if you have any of, you've got different crypto and NFT businesses as well. What's happening there? Yeah, Balthazar is our, our big vehicle. It's a it's a foundation. Um, and we've in, we've got a grant from it to build a, a, a wallet. And we're actually building a game that that that, that connects to it. The, the, the whole space is where we're, what we're building and what we're doing is the bleeding edge. It's developing, it's growing, it's so exciting. And I think what I've observed and noticed is it feels like, I'd say, 1996 internet. Yeah. It's still clunky, things break, it's hard to do technically, yeah. none of the infrastructure's there. What crypto needs is like, it needs its hotmail, where, okay, yeah. this is how you send emails, yeah. Yeah. get it. You, now that I've got a, a true expert here, answer me this question. The, the thing about crypto I don't understand, being uh, n- not uh, exposed to it, is clearly the go- sovereign, uh, uh, there's going to be sovereign crypto. So you're going to have governments like the US who are going to have some kind of digital currency. How does Bitcoin and Ethereum, et cetera, survive in that environment? Is it because there'll be a whole lot of people who don't want to deal with the government or are the governments going to take over because we finally got a digital currency that people can trust? I think there's some version where they coexist. And I'll just talk a little bit about, if I can unpack a few of those topics. I think the first thing is Bitcoin is the first time anyone has something of value where the government doesn't have control. And it's code. It's There's no CEO to call. There's no organization of Bitcoin there's no one, no employees. It's it's code that runs on a, in a decentralized way. So it, it it's to shut it down would be like trying to shut down BitTorrent. It's almost impossible. That's that's the that's the magic I think that mm. has happened all throughout time. If you look at you know, 10, 20, 30,000 years of humanity, we've always sought for something which is scarce. Mm. Scarce things hold value over long periods of time. And you look at something like gold. There is 1.4% of gold is dug up every year. So there is an inflation rate on gold. Or you go and find a meteor and it's got some gold and you bring it in. There's a lot of gold out there. It's just not very easily accessible from a pricing perspective. So it keeps the supply quite scarce. Mm. Except this time you've got a digital version where you can't just copy paste the file mm. of Bitcoin. You know, you, you know, there's only 21 million of them. So you, you either got one or you don't. It's, there's only a certain supply. And there'll never be more because the mm. code is just running. Mm. And so I think you've got digital gold. I don't think c- countries should worry because they're always going to charge taxes to live in that country in their self, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the system that they say, you must pay in this currency. Mm. And so there's always demand. There's always going to demand for Australian mm. dollars because you pay your taxes. But now you've got something where you can exit. Let's compare it to real estate. Real estate's a finite resource. But what we've seen throughout time is that people like kings and queens and governments can take your land back that you can just say, oh, this is crown land. And now because you don't have an army, you know, that's feudalism still existing in, in humanity, right? Mm. No one can take your Bitcoin from you. Whereas, you know, let's take a country like Venezuela, where they people literally, to leave the country is 30, 40% of foreign transaction fees. Or when you, the Ukraine war happened, the central bank closed the, the rails down and everyone bought crypto and, and left. My, yeah. my grandparents brought stamps to Australia to, to, to bring their, their value to get out of Austria. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, the, the, you know, you can't just carry a big bar of gold. I don't know, the gold itself is unbelievably heavy and, and difficult to transport. 
Okay, so you're also in NFT gaming, right? So tell me if I'm I'm right here. For for the listeners not not aware of it, NFT stands for non fungible tokens, which is like a um, a token or icon or in many cases a picture that is unique and it can't be copied. And as such, it has its own value. It's it's rarity of one. And you're in this business. Now, NFT gaming, is that creating characters in gaming that you can trade? The game um, we're about to launch is a game. It's, it's, it's kind of like Space Invaders, but you actually have your own ship. And so your ship um, actually has different traits. So it has fire rate. It moves differently. It, it has critical damage. And so you're playing kind of a traditional game, but it's not a traditional game because it's it's got variants, mm. you know. Mm. So NFT gaming is really the game we've, we've sort of constructed is a game of space invaders, like space invaders. It's not quite space invaders, but you own your ship and your ship has different attributes and, and the attributes determine your, your movement speed, your fire rate. The difference here is but there is a prize to be won, right? So that's a lot like esports to some extent. Mm-hmm. There's a prize at the end. So there's that component of the gaming and then the other part of the game is it's a collectible game. So you want to collect the best ship because you want to try and win the prize. And so now you've got a game of, you know, Pokemon or card trading. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a horse trading kind of game. And I think what's unique about NFT trading is, you know, unlike, say, if you play a game of uh, FIFA where you, you do buy the players, you can't, you, you can trade them to the market. They'll take a big cut, but you can't take them out of the game. You can't hold them yeah. and own them. Yeah. So once the season ends, you're it's done. Yeah. And again, this is this idea of self sovereignty and owning this. And you want to, I want, you know, if I wanted to collect these ships, I I can do that, and no one can get in the way of that. They can't just suddenly go and tax them or mm. close them out or shut them down or whatever it may be. That idea has been a major frustration of gamers who've been playing, you know, World of Warcraft, and their account gets shut down, and they've put you know thousands of hours into this game. They have this magical sword, and it just gets vaporized by mm-hmm. the organization. So decentralizing that and creating these games is really the uh, beginning point and jumping off point of NFT gaming. And I think where it's going to go is it has huge potential to change the way games are played. Yeah. Well, I look at my nine-year-old playing Roblox. This is a game where she's constantly wanting to spend more money on her character and there's people in there spending thousands of dollars on their characters. And, uh, you know, that's just, I can totally agree. I think it's just the beginning of an enormous amount of individuality expressed mm. digitally. You know, if you, if you look at modern day time, I think I saw this recent graph of amount of time spent offline versus online. I think the online people, people are spending their life in terms of online is hitting above 50%. They're more online than they are offline. Mm. That, that's, a, that's a major trend. So what does that mean? Let's imagine you're always looking at a screen to, for the majority of your time and you want to show status. Status is a massive human driver. Like we all get each other, everyone looks at each other and they, we all instinctually know whether we do or not, consciously or consciously, we, stat, we, we, we make a status sort of ranked graph of each other, mm. which is quite fascinating. And, and the way in which people try to, try to adjust that is, you know, they'll buy something in this atoms world, it's not digital. So like a Rolex, you buy a Rolex, now your status has suddenly gone up. You buy a fancy car or a house or whatever it is. So this world of atoms has has status devices. Now in the digital world, how do you replicate that? Because you can't get the atoms onto the, you don't get a Rolex onto the thing. Instead, you buy um, items, which are one of ones, that show your status. Mm. Oh, I own, I'm part of this mm. and I show my symbol. You know, your daughter's same thing. She's got the, this particular dress and other people are like, oh, I can see the status you now have. 
in this digital representation of yourself. Yeah. So I think that's, that's where some of that dynamics might play. The second story I just want to tell is the story of the Mona Lisa. So the, why is the Mona Lisa actually this painting? I was just recently in Paris, at ETH Paris. The, the Mona Lisa actually used to be a painting that no one really looked at. Until one day, um, after four days, someone realized that it had been stolen. And the Mona Lisa wasn't, oh my God, the Mona Lisa, it's been stolen, you know. And the newspapers wrote about it, this painting has been stolen all around the world. This massive story went out. And it wasn't till a good four years later that someone was at a cafe shop in Paris trying to hustle this painting. You know, it's only because it's only a small painting. Mm. I want to sell it. And someone went, that's the Mona Lisa. You, you know, called it in. It went back to the Louvre. And now this painting has infamy. But there's only one Mona Lisa. It's a non-fungible, you know, it's not, a to- I guess, a token, but it, it, there is only one of one. And there's no other replicants of it. Yes, there's, you, could, you could take a screenshot of it. You could, you could draw it. You, know, you could try and repaint it. But this infamy exists entirely with that particular item. Yeah. The reason why some of these you know, digital Rolexes go up and down in value is that some are more famous than others. Yeah. And I think that's, that's that same idea playing out digitally. Yeah, 100%. It's, once again, again, it comes down to brand. You know, it's a brand of a priceless painting. Where, and there's probably about five of them, even though there's many priceless paintings. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. So there's so much stuff going on in your head at a high level. You know, you're, as you say, you're on the bleeding edge. You know, it's not like you're making tables in a new way. So it must be very hard to sleep with all this stuff going on in your head. <laughs> <laughs> I take breaks, mm-hmm. like quite long breaks, you know, one, two months throughout the year. And the reason for that is that during the other, you know, nine, 10 months, I feel like complete, you know, three X the amount of work that or ideas yeah. and things yeah. that other people do. And I'm exhausted. Mm. Uh, I, like, like, like you say, like I literally, I'm thinking of this thing and this thing and I can't help not, that's just comes out. Mm. It's, but then there, there's downtime where like I just recently went to, to Paris and to Thailand just to, just, to, just to take a, a break mm. and stop mm. And let the land go fallow, like David Ogilvy said. You're right. It, you know, I wake up at one, two o'clock, and you could message me, and I'll message you back. And I do a lot of work on my phone, and then I sort of go in two sleeps. Yeah. Um, I find that easier because it's just a lot. You know, the, the idea has just come to me. I must. I got to write it down. I can't yeah. sleep. Yeah, yeah. And that's something to deal. That's the way I, I cope and I deal with that. Yeah, it's interesting. There's an organization in Florida called Human Performance Institute. And for 30 years, they've analyzed what makes someone perform really well. And they started out with uh, top sports people like um, um, Monica Sellers and Jimmy Connors, those type of tennis players and golfers and stuff. And then they ended up in, in the business world. They have kind of reached a similar conclusion to you, which is that the average person does not work hard enough when they're working. And then they do not take enough breaks. So most people work poorly at a low, low output level endlessly for years. Mm. And they, they develop this whole system of pushing yourself really hard, taking a lot of breaks. And I think you're, you're, you're doing that and it's, and it's obviously really working for you. Maybe it was an accident. Yeah, I doubt yeah. it. I don't <laughs> think there's too many accidents happening yeah. in, 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 in Fred's world, coincidences um, de- developing maybe. Um, now, I heard you did something called segmented sleeping. Is that what you mean by two sessions? Yeah, I find it easier to cope or to perform. And, and actually, I, my, my sister uh, regaled the story to me back. If you go back before there was electricity, 
you know, go back in time, people used to wake up in the middle of the night and they would maintain their clothes. They would sew, they would, they would um, reflect and write during those hours because they're quite dangerous hours. So being awake is actually, was, was quite good. And if you, that would probably be a callback to when you're sleeping in the savannah, like being awake yeah. during that time. Yeah. I find that there's another segment of between 4 and 6.30 a.m. that I can sleep as well. I may take a nap during the day. You know, I might go to the bathroom for 10 minutes and just put my hands and on my head and just sleep yeah. for yeah. just 10 minutes and to regather. I don't, I'm not sure why, again, that happens. I just find it works. My mother used to do this as well. She used to do 20 operations, eye operations a day. Just incredible. Wow. One of the things I believe in, it's a principle of mine, is to follow flow. When you hit that moment where you don't know what time and space is doing, you lose track of time and you're so focused and engaged on something and curious, mm. I'd invest. Because you don't always get that time. You know, a lot of the time you're a bit noisy, stuff is, you know, tinkering and things are happening. Yeah. And so when that happens, I grab that and I stay with it and I will sacrifice other things around it. And that might mean that it turns into three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Or it means I have to stay away. You know, I wake up really early and I'm just going to start working and then I'm tired at four o'clock in the afternoon, but that's okay. Mm. I just, I think that's my curiosity. Again, it's the nature of creation. You know, I'm starting to read Rick Rubin's book on this, The Creative Act. I think Yeah, it's, I got that in the last few weeks. Fascinating. Little Zen parables almost. Rick Rubin to listeners is a prominent, amazing producer of music. Sort of putting myself in that creative space, I think that's... I read this book as well, uh, a recent one. I, I haven't completed it. It's, it's, it's a very dense book. It's um, by Alan Watts, which is the, um, This Is It. Um, again, I think I've noticed the commonalities between Rick and Alan and what they're saying about the universe. And, you know, if you're really stressed about something, that's just part of it. Mm. Mm. That's okay. Mm. And if you're really, you know, you're a bit down, that's okay. That was part of it. Yeah. And you're really up as well. That's part of it as well. Yeah. You know, it's okay because this is it. This is this is the game right now, present, every single part of it. That's all part of it. And I, I think coming to terms with some of that doesn't have to be a certain way. doesn't have to be created in different this way. It could just be created on, you know, in whichever way it get, does get created, that's okay. That idea that I didn't, I've, I've, I've enjoyed that. I yeah. think Rick's sort of probably building on that as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a uh, Chicago professor, Mahali Sikhsenmehai, who has devoted decades of his life to studying flow and what were the conditions of flow, which you outlined really well. And he said that the amount of flow experiences someone has where they lose track of time, they're fully engaged, they're making progress, they're in the moment, is highly correlated to how happy people are. So people who don't have much many flow experiences usually don't show a lot of uh, uh, happiness in his, in his research, which makes me think that you're probably a happy guy. Would you view yourself as a happy guy or, or do you think there's a kind of inspirational dissatisfaction that is stopping you? And I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing at all because this is how the world progresses, is, is stopping you from, from being happy. It's a very, it's a very poignant question. I really enjoy your, I enjoy the thread of this. Is <laughs> my cycle goes, a, it's almost like a corkscrew that is going up. Mm-hmm. And so there's a big up and then there's a big, there's a down and I'll go quiet. I'm not really interested. I'm out of, you know, when I'm on my up, I am on focused, thriving, exploring, curious, engaged, and it'll come, you know, sort of come down. And then this is sort of a cycle and I've learned to balance it out a bit, bit more. So it's not that the down is not so low and the high is not so, you know, euphoric. Yeah. 
but they build upon each other. And I think coming to terms and being okay with that, I think that's probably the the macro am I happy question is, yeah, I'm okay with that now. But I think before I was always like, why can't I be on all the time? Mm. I think that was probably the, there's a tension in that. Yeah, yeah. There's a guy called Dan Sullivan, a Canadian guy. He's be, be close to 80 now, but brilliant business coach. And he had this concept, which I, I'd, I'd love your take on regarding this, which is, he said, look, I know entrepreneurs who, who are successful and are happy. And I know entrepreneurs that are successful and miserable. And in his opinion, the reason is all to do with a gap. And the people who are miserable, who are successful entrepreneurs, are always looking at the gap between where they are now and where they want to be. And the successful entrepreneurs that are happy have a gap as well. And they're looking at where they are now versus where they once were. Oh, wow. That's really smart. I think I probably would fit into the first camp of where I want to be mm-hmm. for the majority of my life. I think I get these small glimmers of moments where I look back and go, oh, wow, I didn't make that same mistake. I'm getting better. Mm. Every like like I'm st- I think that balance I'm s- a shifting slightly. I would definitely own the yeah probably where I want to be. Yeah, and and you're you know you're obviously a, a, you know a great thinker and in many ways functioning in a semi ethereal world of of thought with, on the on the cutting edge. But you run an organization and you're a manager and and you you once said in an interview. If you need to be managed, you probably need to be managed out. <laughs> Me- meaning, of course, that that you know people should run their own uh, race. Every, every one of them. Are, are you a ruthless manager? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very uh, perceptive uh, comment. I, I think, yeah, I hold very high standards, and I'm ruthless about them, and I will communicate them directly, and people know that about me. I don't, you could say, suffer fools and I will be very quick to exit and and shut down the situations because it's not just me, it's the other people that they're with that they feel let down by, that they don't feel they can be their personal best and I feel for them Mm. because I'm that person as well and I want everyone to feel that striving and being the best version of yourself and being great is okay and being amongst a crew of people that are doing that as well. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay and so I won't let, that affect them. And what that also means by probably, and which is the most brutal is you have to commit to some level of personal growth because everyone's growing in that environment. And if you don't, you are really part of an organization where you're no longer, like you may have been at the top, but because everyone grew past you and that can be very confronting for a lot of people as well. Very hard conversations. Yeah. They're probably the hardest, you know, I I, I tell you a short story. My mom, she was watching me play cricket with these kids um, that I that were her family friends and I was slogging the ball all over the place. The, the other kids were, it was unfair. Like I was yeah. annihilating. My friend and I, we were just, it was, it was a shocking, you know, unfair game. And one of the parents came over to my mom and said, said, your son, you, can't, you know, you need to pull him back. He, you can't do that. And she turned to him and said, no, that's my son. I'm not going to pull him back. Well, you did the work. You did the practice. Don't pull the big, order to Don't pull them down. Yeah. Let yeah. them thrive. Yeah. The other ones have got to step up. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, 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 I really agree with that. I think that you can separate broadly, certainly in the work world, you can separate people into two categories. Those who 
want to be excellent and those who don't want to be excellent, regardless of intelligence or aptitude or, or whatever. And one of my favourite sayings of all time is from the US football coach of the 60s, Vince Lombardi, and he said that the quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence, regardless of their chosen field of endeavour. And I, I think that's true. I think there's people who want to be excellent and people who don't care. I love that so much. Yeah. It made me a bit emotional that story. But <laughs> yeah, no, fascinating. Touched, touched a lot of my... I just remember that there's probably a lot of conversations that um, probably happen around me that I don't realise that are like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think what I'm... A, is a, is a steward of protecting other people so that when they want to succeed and be excellent, that they are not pulled down either. Yeah. And I'm upholding that. Yeah, brilliant. And how do you pick those people? Like uh, you're... you're well known for having some unusual tests uh, for <laughs> selecting employees. Take us through that. So for me, the test begins at the very first contact. It's, it's, it's the email that's sent. It's how you organize the meeting. Did they organize it? Did you organize it? Did you tell them the address of your office? Did you need to tell them the address? You know where they, we, they, they should know where we are. We're on the internet. If you can't use the internet, then <laughs> that's it. So everything, every moment, every interaction to me says something about the individual. It's not necessarily, you, you can't just ask, oh, hey, are you proactive? You just say, oh, they, they, on the call, they'll say, I sent you the meeting request. I'll see you at your office because I've already looked it up. They were, you, you, yeah. It's a read of that individual, of all the subtleties that go behind that person. Almost like if you're looking at a play or a movie and the writer is writing the attributes of that character's story, I'm trying to work out what that attribute of that person's story is. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're around someone who's striving for excellence, who is a master, who is not just trying to participate, they're trying to win, they're trying to be great, you feel that. Mm. It's something, you know, you let the conversation go and where the conversation goes or they take the conversation. You can. It's an intuition. It's a feeling like, do I feel if we will have to go and fly to Mars right now, do I bring them on the ship or not? Mm. Will they contribute? Yes or no? Mm. If it's a no, it's a no. Yeah. If it's a yes, this person will contribute. This person's better than me. They're better than a whole lot of people. And they're probably going to be even better than most people I know in the future. I'm putting my bet on that person. They're coming to Mars with me. If not, they can fly another ship. There's probably other things to do as well. Yeah. And that's not to say, but that's their choice of how great they want to be. That's mm. their best version. That's their level that they want to go for. That's okay. I just want to be around people who want to fly to Mars and actually get there. Yeah. You're here with Simon Reynolds and Fred Sebestra here in the Business Lounge. The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. And that search for greatness in the arena of business leads to incredible results, I believe. But what about in the personal life? When you, when you come home and you've got your family around you, how do you temper those standards when you're with people in, in the non-work world? It's interesting. You know, it's taken me quite a while to adapt to that and work out the index. What, what is the index? And for me, the index, which I've now turned to and focus on, is the quality of the relationship that I have with my children and my partner. And obviously my, my ex-partner as well, and which who is amazing and fantastic and love her. And we, you know, we went, we went to Thailand together and we have an, a, a very unusual family, for, I think for most, but that works for us. Yeah. The quality of the relationship is, can I have a conversation and an uncomfortable conversation? One, 
to, and it not, not blow up the relationship, yep. to do I understand the non-spoken things that are going on with my children at that at any point in time that we can actually, they don't necessarily have to talk about it all the time, but just to know if something was to happen, they could come and have a chat about that because we're in sync. We're okay. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I see my role of excellence here is, can I have those conversations? How good is the quality of my interactions and the timing I deliver them in? You know, don't, you know, always commenting on the last maths exam. Why do you need to? Yeah. There's probably another. They know the mark they got. Yeah. When there's an achievement, when there is a time to celebrate and have a conversation, that's on me. It's my performance. Yeah. And and I, I struggled, I think, in the beginning. I didn't realize what was that index. Do I need to uphold a standard that you must hit this certain grade? I don't think that's what I, I've, I've focused on. I've now changed my lens to go... My role here, I'm not the one taking the test. I'm never going to be the one taking the test. Mm. And who, what, what's the deal about what, what the test result is? It's up to them what they want to do, and that's their journey. Mm. But are you there, and do you have a quality enough relationship that if something doesn't work, or if they need some advice, and they're comfortable to come to me, that's who I want to be. Beautiful. So let's talk about self-confidence. At, at first glance, you look like a really confident guy, You've got the courage to dress differently. You've got different points of view. You express them. Uh, your business is, uh, you know, has shown you know great confidence in the, a lot of the moves that you make. But highly intelligent humans are often nuanced and multifaceted. Would you yourself view yourself as as a confident person? Another very challenging question for me, which I have observed myself go through phases with dramatic differences. And the question I feel you're asking is, do I trust myself? Sure. Um, I think if I went back in time, the answer like it would be no. And I think for good reason, right? I really didn't know a lot of things. I still don't know a lot of things about the world. I'm still learning and guessing. And sure. I think there are areas where I have very strong conviction now and I can intuitively make a leap and I will back myself. I think over the last three years, it was a very, I think everyone experienced it. It was a brutal business time and it shook my confidence. And I am probably a little scared about certain things. On the flip side of that is when I'm scared and I'm about to do something, that's actually now I've learned to be the signal, go and do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I keep, I keep putting myself out there. I think some of the calculations I will make, for, you know, to some extent mean that I probably do appear confident but that's because I'm confident in I've done the work and I'm back in my work and I'm, maybe I've missed something that can happen and it normally does. But to a large degree, I'd say when I've done the work and I've calculated it and I put money behind it, it tends to work Yeah, more often than it doesn't. Mm. In my probably unorthodox approach to it, mm. I have a met, you know, there's a method in that that leads to me choosing a different route that has a lot more alpha in it rather than getting the beta return. Yeah. return. yeah, That's a long-winded way of saying... No, no, makes uh, sense. Yes and no, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, recently, probably a bit more shook. Yeah, and I think yes and no is a superior result than yes, because someone who views themselves as holistically confident, you know, they might be about to step off a cliff and, and they haven't checked. So, you know, I think that's great. I think that's really, really smart. And and finally, uh, and I could talk, talk for hours uh, uh, with you, um, let's talk about at one point you, you talked about your main values 
being family, wealth, and legacy, and beautiful set of values. But tell us about legacy. What do you hope the legacy will be for for Fred at the at the end of your life? What will people? What do you hope that people will say? I'm hoping that people go and are inspired to listen to themselves, take a different path that really results in ups and downs. And you can see it from my my history and be okay with that. And then gain a little fragment extra confidence to go and do something great Beautiful. in some way, shape or form. Beautiful. Fred, you are a very special human. Thank you so much for being here on The Business Lounge. Thanks so much, Simon. Thanks everyone for listening. The Business Lounge, where business outsiders become insiders. So what did we learn? Well, about 10,000 things, but a few things that come to mind are the the courage to be on the bleeding edge. So the thing about Fred is he's not just searching for a way to make money. He's searching for a new way for the world to work. And that's a bigger game to play. It's a tougher game to play, but at the if you get it right, then it's a much more lucrative and probably satisfying game to play as well. Another thing that really came through, I think you'll agree, is just the the firmness and clarity of his conviction that people have got to work to a high standard, that people, he's not going to compromise if you're not ready to not only be good straight up, but keep getting better and not be once good and then surpassed over time by other other people. And you could you could really sense his seriousness about that. In every aspect of his life, he's shown that he wants to be different. It's it's like he has this lens, I'm gonna be different, and it shows up in work, it shows up in his dress, he dresses in all black, it shows up in his haircut, which if you've ever seen a photo is is you know would be viewed by many people as radical. It's literally a stance to be different, and it's exhibited all throughout uh, his life. And then finally, uh, taking big breaks. That was a real interesting one for me is you've got to go work super hard, but he's also prepared to take large amounts of time off. And so many entrepreneurs uh, feel guilty if they take even a day off. And it's so crazy because that's when you've got the time for your brain to resettle and come up with new ideas and, 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 and just regenerate for the, for the next, next burst of activity. And he does that, and he does it in a bigger way than almost everyone. The Business Lounge. Disrupt Radio. Conscious Capital. I'm Tane Hunter. Better business for a better world. Where we explore the cutting edge of science, technology, and human progress to help individuals and organizations understand what's coming next. Get ready to be inspired as we dive into the hearts and minds of the pioneers who are redefining success one socially conscious step at a time. On this show, you'll hear from scientists, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are all on a mission to foster intelligent, optimistic thinking about our future. Conscious Capital. You'll learn that there are better ways of doing things in the 21st century and how you can be part of creating and investing in a fair and sustainable future for all. Live on DAB+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.